listener production. Carly Finlay is honest, outspoken and passionate. She is an author and appearance activist who lives with a rare skin condition called ichthyosis. Ichthyosis quite literally means scaly red skin. Carly was born with it and it can't be cured. What this means is that Carly puts up with a lot of silly, inappropriate and downright rude questions from strangers. She also receives a lot of unwelcome and inaccurate advice. Not enough of the people Carly meets in her life know what to say. Carly wishes they'd just start with hello. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Soon, the gang from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club join me for The Weekend List. We will tell you what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with the quite incredible Carly Finlay, where you'll get to know her a little better and learn about her work and perhaps take away a new perspective on being disabled. Carly Finlay, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Now, I struggled with where on earth I was supposed to start with you, firstly because we're mates, so I know a lot about your life and how fascinating you are, but also because you are one of those people who is prolific with the amount of work you put out into the world. I'm going to start with Growing Up Disabled in Australia. Tell me why this book is personal for you and what it would have meant for you as a kid to read it. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't grow up feeling disabled because I didn't see anyone like me, even though I had this skin condition ichthyosis for all of my life. I just didn't think I was because all I saw was awful depictions of disability. I also saw Paralympians and I was neither of those. I hate sport. And so <laughs> and so I um, just, just didn't realise, you know, and I didn't have the words to advocate for what I needed because I didn't call myself disabled then so it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I identified because I met other people and I'm like oh wow we share all these things in common even though we've got different diagnoses and so to have a book like this when I was young would have been amazing because I would have read about people with skin conditions people with facial differences that are disabled and proud and you know I have struggled also but really had that strong sense of identity so the book came out earlier this year it was during the pandemic. We thought we had a bit of a, a bit of a window for events. And then I think we did one event and then we went into lockdown. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but we've had so many online events, so much coverage, and the book went to reprint within two weeks, which is amazing. Congratulations. I want to ask about the pandemic, mostly because we can't get through a 20-minute conversation without talking about it these days. <laughs> you and I are both disabled people. And one of the things I struggled with during the pandemic was some of the media coverage and some of the community conversation about mm-hmm. people who are vulnerable and this sense mm. of it's okay, COVID's probably only going to kill you if you're old or you're already unwell. Yeah. And as someone who's already unwell, that made me feel really dispensable at times. What was your reaction to how the media shaped the experience of people with disabilities during the pandemic? I was really concerned when, particularly in New South Wales, there was a lot of mention around pre-existing conditions with deaths and hospitalisations. My doctors, the dermatology team, 
are amazing. And from the very beginning of the pandemic, so in March 2020, they said to me, I'm at greater risk because the skin is such a barrier to infection. And that's not just skin infection, that's other things as well. And so they you know, advised me to work from home. They advised me to wear a mask. So I've been wearing a mask pretty much since the bushfires, to be honest, since early last year. And then I've been doing telehealth and things. But I have been watching, particularly overseas, it started, I feel like it started in the US where lots of people who had pre-existing conditions weren't prioritised for care. You know, there was too much pressure on the hospital system and we saw that ambulances were sort of selecting who they were taking to the hospital. And then I saw it come here this year, particularly this year, I felt like around the deaths, you know, that you will only get it if you're vulnerable. And that's just not fair. And the other thing that I saw was difficulty with the vaccination rollout where disabled people, many disabled people, not all disabled people, had to jump through many hoops to get vaccinated, whereas non-disabled people didn't. And you and I, I think, were in the 1B. And I had to wait a little while because of the demand and the lack of vaccines to start with. So I waited two months. And I remember when you told me that Adam, my husband, might be eligible for a carer vax. So thank you for that. But I was just so resentful of him because he literally walked straight in and just said, I'm a carer. And I had to provide so much documentation. I had to travel an hour and a half away from home. And I remember saying to them when I made my booking, I said, because I said, you have to bring a letter. I said, can't you just Google me? Honestly, I have had provided so many <laughs> letters during this pandemic. Like I've provided letters for my cleaner because cleaners weren't essential services unless it was for medical reasons. And then I provided a letter for my um, mask exemption for not wearing it for a long period of time and then there were other letters as well and there's just so much documentation and then the COVID stuff and then when we had our booster shots that was just a whole schmozzle as well and there was that real disbelief around needing to prove that you're disabled to get this so not only was the media saying oh disabled people don't matter but the whole healthcare system was saying that we had to do so much more the non-disabled people. And, and I know that it hasn't just been me that's been denied my booster. I was denied it twice by my GP and also by a doctor at the clinic. And so finally I just went into the big clinic and, and got it straight away. But, you know, that's really traumatic. And I know that other disabled people have felt that as well when we should have been prioritised more. Absolutely. And we know that there are so many disabled Australians who still haven't had their COVID vaccinations despite having been in that priority category. And Carly, look, I just said disabled Australians. And that's something I want to talk to you about because language is so critical when we're talking about disability. I'm someone who describes myself as disabled. There are others who prefer the terminology of person with a disability. Mm -hmm. You speak so beautifully about the importance of language. Can you talk me through the terminology you prefer for yourself and why it might be that there's still discussion and debate amongst the disability community about who prefers what? Yeah, I feel like the non-disabled people often tell us off about how we are supposed to identify. The worst I ever had was a family member, actually, who said, don't talk about yourself like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) Because they see it as something to be shameful of, something to be pitied, something to be avoided. And so I think, like, government, media, organisations really should use people with disability. That's a kind of general term in Australia. I see disability as part of my identity. So I say I'm a disabled person as there would be Aboriginal people that would say they're an Aboriginal person or there'll be um, trans people that say they're a trans person. And we can say we're a disabled person because it's a part of our identity. 
when I think about people with disability, I think they're just carrying it along and they can put it down. I can't put my disability down at the end of the day. I can't leave it behind when I walk into the workplace, you know. That means that I'm a disabled person. It's part of my identity. I also see it as a culture. Disability is definitely, Mm. you know, a culture within itself and it's obviously part of the culture. 15% of the global population are disabled, probably more if they haven't been diagnosed or self-identify. It's definitely like a culture. And so when we're talking about things like media representation and uh, film appropriation and Halloween, for example, if someone is like, dressing up as someone with a facial difference or a disability or we call that cripping up, that is appropriation. That's appropriation of a culture. I want to stick with language for a little bit longer because ableist language is something that is so widespread within our vernacular and it is something I have been working really hard, particularly the last 18 months or so, to remove from my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've discovered in trying to do that is just how far-reaching ableist language is. You know, I I would never use the R word, for example, but I have regularly used words that I now look back and go, oh, for example, I used to be very fond of the word bonkers. That was my way of describing something that I would now describe as wild. If there's someone listening right now who wants to kind of shift their language use a little bit. How do they do that? And if there's someone listening who doesn't think it's important, why should they do that? Great question. I mean, I think the language question is really hard, not only the terminology, you know, around using disability or not, Mm. but also the defence of using these ableist words, you know, and people say, oh, language has evolved or I'm not saying it to a disabled person, so it doesn't matter. Like, it does matter. No one's ever used disability slurs as a compliment, right? You don't ever say, and I'm going to use a slur now, you don't ever say that someone's stupid and that's a compliment. So stop using them. Think about the behaviour of this person. Like, if you're describing the person, Like if you're describing the protesters that, you know, the anti-vax protesters, for example, you know, there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter particularly around this and there's that hashtag COVIDiots. If you're thinking about those things, think about their behaviour, think about the protesters' behaviours. So are they selfish? Are they individualistic? Are they inexcusable, for example? Think about that rather than describing them as an insult. And the other thing, I think it goes for people with facial differences as well, like describing body features. We often hear Barnaby Joyce is called a beetroot, right? And as a person with a red face, you know, beetroot's an insult that I've had for years, that I've endured for years, but also he's got so many other things that you could criticise him for, not his appearance. (laughs) There are options. Right? So criticise their behaviour. I think the other day I was looking at one of the articles around our Prime Minister, and he had lied about something, but then he said he didn't lie. And I said that he's like a slimy old zucchini in the bottom of the veggie crisper, right? And that got traction. Yeah, and you you have perhaps only insulted zucchinis who will be fine. (laughs) I am aware of the irony of the question that I'm about to ask, but how do you feel that you are so often called upon to do the work of educating people who aren't disabled (laughs) and when you're called upon to do that work and you're paid for it you know like sure go for your life but I know that you are often given that responsibility outside of 
it being your job, as I have just done for the last five minutes, I've asked you to help educate this audience. (laughs) When does that feel appropriate to you? And when does that feel frustrating? Yeah, I feel like if someone is going to use it in their work and it's going to benefit them, they should pay me. You know, I often put out my Patreon or PayPal. That's been a really big work for me to build that confidence up to do that. But I will say, hey, if my work has helped you, because I know it has, because you constantly told me, please buy me a drink. And people have, like people are amazing. You know, I bought my new couch because people have bought me a drink. So thank you. I put my deposit on my car because people have bought me a drink. So thank you. There is that expectation where people can't Google. They also think that I will speak for everyone. And that's absolutely not true. I only know my experience. Obviously, I've got a wide knowledge of things from reading in the media and disabled friends and being in the community and working in this space. But I just find that there's this expectation to constantly educate. And there is this reputation that I've developed now, where I have been really open in asking for media brands and influencers mostly to be more accessible. And so I do that publicly because it's just exhausting privately because then they get all defensive and and if it's public other people can learn so I'll say hey friends can you please make your photos accessible by putting an image description on it or can you please caption this video now some of them have which is great but then some of them get so defensive they tell me I'm rude you know apparently I've been called insufferable a number of times so there's that like that's just exhausting and I'm doing that work for free right but I'm not doing it just to benefit me actually I don't benefit from captions or image descriptions, but I'm doing it to benefit the wider community. You know, we have put so much work out there already, like disabled people have. It's not like people can't find out about it or it's not like people can't access this information. Someone tweeted me a few weeks ago. I've, I've come to, you know, just outing trolling, really. And this wasn't particularly a trolling thing, but someone on Twitter had tweeted, hey, Carly, can you please give me some examples of ableism? Oh, wow. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I put it on Instagram and I tweeted about it. Look, I think that, I, you know, I can't, you know, maybe made an example out of them and, you know, I'm aware of my power imbalance with that person. But also I did it because this exactly was ableism, you know, like the expectation that I will relive it. And I said, well, I've written a book. I've edited a book. You can go and read those things. I've written a blog and done all of that work. And I also got a lot of people come back at me and said, hey, you've got to be kinder here. You've got to remember that not everyone knows. And someone was talking about the algorithm and how I need to make sure that I <laughs> I put out positive content in case people Google and they find the wrong content. Oh, my God. Like the expectation is just enormous. And I read this really funny tweet the other day and it said something like, I'm sorry that my experience that I just wrote about doesn't match yours and you were offended so much because I I get that as well, you know, like when you talk about this stuff, when you put it back on the other person, they get really, they get really offended. I know an experience you've also had, Carly, is having your image misused. And having people use your photograph without permission. Uh Yeah. Can you tell me about that experience and what that felt like? So for ages, I've been online for years. Like I've been blogging for 20 years or so. And I've always been sort of up to about 2005 maybe. I've been really worried about putting my photo on the internet because I'm like, oh, my God, what if someone ridicules it? And 
when we got MySpace, remember MySpace? Vaguely. <laughs> I was blogging on MySpace and I put my photo up there and I got the confidence then. And then I started blogging proper when I was doing my Master of Communication. I was always still, you know, a bit apprehensive, always put my best face forward so that it wasn't the worst that would be shared. I woke up one day in 2013, eight years ago, nearly eight years ago, and I'd just been to see a band and I had this new boyfriend who's now my husband and I was all really happy and he went to work and I checked my blog starts. Back then I used to check them. And I noticed that a whole heap of people had come to my blog and I I hadn't blogged for ages, like not for, I don't know, two weeks or something. And I'm like, what's happened? And someone had posted my photo on Reddit they posted it on Reddit and they posted it in a forum called What the F*** Forum and it was just like a whole heap of, you know, like well, I don't know whether memes were a big thing then but it was just like look at this kind of thing, you know, like what the f*** is she doing or what happened here or whatever. And so I clicked over and it was just like a photo of me and at a really happy stage as well, like I, I'm such a fangirl and this was a photo of me at the Rush premiere. So Rush used to be a show on Channel 10 and it had Callum Mulvey and I yeah, just love Callum and, and Sam Johnson. And so I was there whole, like dressed up and holding a glass of champagne and they were all discussing what happened to me. Like oh, she's been burnt in a fire. It was just ridiculous. And But some of the stuff was just hideous. Like some of the things that were said was I look like a glazed donut, I look like a lobster, I look like something someone's dog had vomited up. Anyway, so all blurry-eyed and awake at like 6.30 in the morning, I wrote about it on Facebook just briefly and I said this is like I kind of had a feeling this might happen, you know, because I avoided putting my photo on so long. I put this on Facebook and then I took that Facebook status and I rewrote it and I put it as a comment on Reddit and um, it changed the conversation. The person apologised kind of. Wow. Kind of. And then someone I'd met in New York, we shared a taxi with someone from Staten Island to Manhattan and he happened to see it and he's like, oh, I've shared a taxi with this girl. And then people were like offering to buy me drinks. It turned the conversation around. But the thing that was most disturbing was Reddit and the moderators took no responsibility. Privately, they were messaging me to apologise, but publicly they weren't doing anything to take it down. And so then it made the media, it was a bit weird actually, it made the media, I remember the next morning I got a call. I used to work at the government as well, so I really had to manage how I appeared in the media. Even though I was not public on my job at the government, I had to always tell the media unit about this. And um, that afternoon after I blogged about it, it got traction and it made the media the next day. And in the morning, the next morning, I got a call from CNN in the US and then it made international news like heaps. And it was still going for a long time, actually. It would pop up a lot. And it was really weird. Like the experience of being viral alongside the criticism was just... (laughs) Like people were lovely, but also like I'm very private around where I live and where I worked at the time. And people were going, oh, yeah, I see Carly around work and I see Carly around this town. Oh, just stop. So it's not just unidentified souls on Reddit who have treated you badly. It's people in the mainstream media, people who put their names to their work or to their journalism. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. (laughs) I am an absolute passionate advocate around how disability is reported on in the media. Like I constantly talk about it. When footballers make a gaffe, I write about it. I hate football, but I've written about that. I've delivered training in the form of a video to this media outlet, to the ABC, kind of five tips for journalists and editors. 
So then I was asked on the morning show with the radio announcer, very seasoned. I actually never say his name because I don't want to give him power. He asked me on this show, actually his co-host asked me, and I was a little bit nervous because I'd been listening to that show for years and I sort of knew how grilling he could be. And I went on the show. He never met me before, didn't know of me, which is weird because I'm not saying don't you know who I am, but I've been writing for The Age for years. I've been speaking at events. I've been on the ABC, you know, many times. I'd done You Can't Ask That. I'd done other things as well. And he went to the toilet. I asked him if he could lower the stand desk because I didn't want to stand for half an hour. And so they lowered it and he got back and he was a bit annoyed who lowered the sit-stand desk. And I said, oh, that was me. I can't stand for all that time. I'll be sore. So it kind of got off to a weird start then. And then he sort of relayed what my skin looked back to me, that, you know, I'm very inflamed and look like a burns victim. And then he said, what's the most awful question you've ever been asked? Because I get a lot of unsolicited advice. And I said, probably, can you have sex? And he said, well, can you? Yeah. And then I sort of laughed it off. Like this is live radio, right, with another person in the room, two, I'm assuming, non-disabled people, two powerful people in the media. And I sort of laughed it off. Did this just happen? And then he said to me that, you know, I'd get asked a lot of questions and and then about kids staring and I said, yeah, kids stare. And then he says, it can't be good at Halloween implying that my face is some sort of Halloween costume. Anyway, he went on and then people texted in and he read out their comments and stuff and then I'm just like that was really weird and then I got up and I shook his hand and you know said goodbye and whatever and went downstairs so I went back to work and they're in a meeting in our staff meeting and I said oh, how did it go and I said yeah he said my face wouldn't be good at Halloween and he asked if I can have sex and everyone was like whoa even though I know I'm a public figure, I sort of, you know, try to keep my head down a bit when I'm doing my day job and this is really awkward. Then Twitter blew up. I wasn't looking at my phone in the day, but I'd seen it being discussed after work and I got the audio and I put it on SoundCloud. It's still there. That was the moment I realised people could pick what ableism was because so often it's defended, but I had so much support. Carly, I want to say thank you for sharing that story and how sorry I am that that happened to you. Thank you. But I actually hadn't heard about the public response before and it really heartens me to think that enough members of the community can pick ableism and are willing to stand up and to say something and to defend you in those circumstances. It was incredible. And on behalf of those people who are willing to learn and who want to do better, thank you for being with us on the weekend briefing and sharing so much of your knowledge. That was really fun. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Carly Finlay. You can buy her memoir, Say Hello, at all good bookstores or online via Booktopia. Don't go away because The Weekend List is coming up. It is Weekend List time and Brooke Boney from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast where they talk about the most important moments in pop culture during the week is with me to recommend what you're going to see and watch and do and cook and listen to and all those kinds of things. But firstly, Brooke, how are you doing? I'm good, sweetheart. How are you? You know what? I'm struggling with the heat. I feel like I have spent most of this year complaining about it being cold and wet. And now that it's hot, I don't like it. 
this is the first warm day that we've had in like three or four weeks. So I'm just like absorbing all of the rays that I can, but I'm very sensitive to the heat. So I totally get what you, I respect that. No shade from me, Jamila. I appreciate that. So I am going to be spending the weekend when people are listening to this podcast, watching television, reading books, listening to music. What can I watch? One of the things that's just come out this week is a very dear friend of mine has released a book of poetry and prints that he's done of wood carvings and it's called Killanova. It's by a guy called Omar Ben Musa. So he's an artist who's based in Queanbeyan and an excellent writer. He's just got such a beautiful way of thinking of things and I'm so lucky to call him a friend and he's one of the people that I actually had a lot of conversations with when I was in lockdown and so I feel like the brilliance that he brings to his friendships and his conversations and the way that he thinks normally is like all summed up in this book one of the one of my favorite passages that I've seen so far is this poem that he wrote about like taking notice of the little things and in the absence of like broad picture big sky thinking It is all of these like little tiny things that make up our days that we just get so enraged or fulfilled by. He has such a beautiful way of bringing them all together. So I really recommend you pick up this book and feel like inspired and understood and seen by Omar because it's a real gift. Omar is definitely one of those human beings who is disgustingly talented at too many things. The fact that not only does he bring this beautiful writing forward in this book, but oh, by the way, here are my exquisite wood carvings to accompany your reading experience. He also made Sambal. That's his branding thing that he's doing, like his little promo thing. How talented can one person be? It is too much. It is too much. Well, there you go, everyone. There are many forms in which you can get some Omar Bin Musa in your life (laughs) this weekend. Brooke, I have also been doing some reading and I finished just a couple of days ago Sean Kelly's new book, The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. And that might not feel like the rollicking, exciting weekend read you are ready to sit down with folks, but it genuinely is. And I think one of the differences about this biography of the Prime Minister is that it is not written by a journalist. It is written by a former Prime Ministerial staffer. So Sean Kelly worked for Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister and he was one of the rare staffers who also worked for Julia Gillard. And so he is a really keen observer of politics but also a really keen observer of strategy. And he has pulled together this book about the Prime Minister, which I think is the best biography of Scott Morrison I've read so far. And we are heading into an election year. If you haven't been paying attention politically, this is the moment for you to sit up and start taking some notice. And I think this is a really smart place to start. Oh, I can't wait to read that. You know, I love that people are doing these profiles of him while he's still in office. I saw a couple of months ago, Lech Blaine did one for the quarterly essay as well. It's really interesting to see people take a view of someone while they're still operating. And especially, like you said, as we're going to an election year, super good reading and super good time for it. I don't know whose quote I'm butchering right now, but I remember someone telling me once that journalism and reporting is essentially the first draft of history. And I think it's interesting to watch someone who has been doing that minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, pause for a moment and do that first draft of how we're going to remember Scott Morrison's prime ministership. I mean, it'll keep changing and evolving, but here's draft number one. Now you'll never see me cry. 
Brooke, I paused for a moment and I tried to think of how I was going to get from a biography of Scott Morrison to James Bond and I've got nothing. I've got nothing. You don't think that ScoMo sort of reminds you of Daniel Craig in any way? That's weird. I immediately think of him. In no ways whatsoever, (laughs) in zero ways. Does he remind me of Daniel Craig? Do you know what's so funny? Because I've been re-watching all of the Daniel Craig Bonds because I haven't seen No Time to Die yet. Uh, yes, I know I'm an entertainment reporter, but they didn't give us a screener to watch it before we did the interviews because they were so scared about it leaking. Even like Billie Eilish, who wrote the song for it, only got like the first 20 pages to write the song. Wow. So, I know. So I wanted to go back and watch the other Bond movies with Daniel Craig in them. And they're such great movies, firstly. Like they're Excellent. The cinematography is beautiful. I love all of the styling, like the clothes and the feel of all of the rooms and the set design and all of that sort of stuff. But what really struck me is that if he is the model that we have or that men have for like the ideal picture of masculinity, no wonder it's so bloody confusing for people because Mm -hmm. he doesn't really speak about his emotions. Like he has some really big things happen. Like, you know, this woman who is like the love of his life dies and she loves him. He loves her. It's this weird thing where he just doesn't really say much about it or he sort of resents her and thinks that she's betrayed him. I thought to myself, wait, this guy who's incredibly ripped, is really good at fighting people, good at driving fast cars, can operate all sorts of heavy machinery, dresses incredibly well. This is like what men look at and think like, yep, that's what people want in a man. That's the epitome, right? Yeah, it's so troubling that, you know, if men are looking at him and thinking he's really well-dressed, he fights really well, he can operate heavy machinery, he's really cool, he gets all of the hot babes, that that's what they would aim to be. It's so concerning. I think there is a job for us, Brooke, you and me, to sit down with the next script for the next James Bond film and add a scene and it's Are You OK Day and James Bond's with his mate who's just come home from the psychologist and he's like, dude, you're not okay. I think we need to talk through some stuff. I think we need some sessions. You've been through a lot. Yeah, let's just talk it out. You know what? Maybe you can cry if you want. I'd be happy with that. I feel like a lot of people would see that movie. I think we should pitch it to them, Jam. I think that they'd be really open to it. I also feel like there'd be good money in Bond films. I just got an inkling. Yeah. <laughs> Brooke, for those who can't cope with just that much Bond this weekend, I'm going to give you an alternative recommendation. I have been watching Snowpiercer on Netflix, which has been around a little while but somehow just completely passed me by. It is set on a very fancy train. It picks up seven years after the world has frozen over and there are 3,000 survivors on earth and they are on this magnificent perpetually moving train that is circling the globe, chewing up snow and ice to make water and grow food and keep its passengers alive. It was built by this eccentric rich dude called Mr. Wilford And the train has more than 1,000 cars and it is divided into class systems. So the richest ticket buyers to the survival train live in luxury. They have a whole train cart to the family and they, you know, have lovely bedrooms and they go to the spa and there's an aquarium and all this sort of thing. And then at the very back of the train, we go right through the class system to the stowaways who are people who were working middle class who could never have afforded tickets on the train and have 
hoarded secretly and are now living off pretty much scraps of nothing with 70 or 80 people crammed into one room at the back of the train. And then, Brooke, if that's not enough drama, there has been a murder on the train and one of the penniless people from the very back is pulled forward to the front because he used to be a detective before climate change ended the world and everyone ended up on the train and he has to solve the murder. So it is wacky. It's got everything. It's got a lot going on. I'm not going to say it's the best written drama in the history of the world. I think it lacks the elegance of simplicity, clearly, but it's really watchable and I'm having such a good time. What do you see when you look at this train? I see a fortress to class. I see 3,000 souls surviving on a planet determined to freeze all life. Today, we take this train. We march to the engine! That sounds like a great watch. And I really hope that you have a lovely weekend, curled up, relaxing, and taking the rest that you need. Because you know what? We, unlike James Bond, take rest when we need it. We don't just go around fighting. We will indeed take some rest. Brooke, thank you for being with me. And to those of you listening who haven't had a chance to tune in to Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast, do yourself a favour and get that done over the next couple of days. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of Brooke and Linda's Dream Club or The Briefing, then you need to subscribe either in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a sneaky rating and a review while you're there. We will be back next week, bright and early Monday morning with the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.